how do you know if a person has kept their word? I mean, how do you know somebody makes you a promise and says, you know, I will do this for you or whatever? How do you know if they haven't kept their word? Well, you know because what they have promised, they don't do. They fail to to follow through on what they said they would follow through on. Now, let's suppose that somebody very rich contacted you, gave you a call one day just out of the blue and said, hi, and I, I want you to know that I am going to be giving your family $100 billion. And we say, whoa. And uh, you think, boy, this is... This is is great. And he says, yes, it will be delivered to your family in the form of a check. And uh, so he hangs up and and immediately you begin to think, well, I can quit my job and I can get this house and I could build this and I could do this and I could go this. And you start just imagining it's a hundred billion dollars, a lot of money. But uh, no one ever calls. No one ever comes by. As a matter of fact, you wait for weeks, and no one calls, and then months, and then years, and pretty soon you just realized it was a, a cruel hoax, a lie, a, a promise that was false. And you grow old, and you die. And your children sometimes tell the story of the crazy billionaire who promised your family a hundred billion dollars. Your children grow old and die. And then your children's children and their children and their children and their children all grow old and die. And ten generations pass away and still the family joke, kind of the myth of the family that somebody was going to show up with the money and when you get together for special occasions you joke about checking your mail for the check, which has never come. Then one Christmas season in the year 2403, your descendants are together having a Christmas feast. They hear a knock on the door. Someone goes to the door to answer it. And there's a delivery man there with a registered piece of mail. You open it up and there's a check for $100 billion payable to your family. And then you realize for the first time that the crazy billionaire was not crazy. He did not lie. He did not break his promise, promise and the family received just what was promised, though many years ago, though it took 400 years. Keep this in mind. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has kind of two halves of his book. One's kind of the big bummer section. It's not all bad, but there's a whole bunch of judgment and woes that are promised in the first 35 chapters, judgment against the people around Israel and against Israel for their sin. There's some great promises in there, and then there's this little historical episode of Hezekiah's ministry and reign as king. And then chapter 40, the whole tone of the book changes. It switches from mostly judgment to mostly comfort, promises, good things to come. And in this section, 
He starts out in verse 1 saying, Comfort my comfort, O people Israel. He talks about Israel's warfare being ended, her iniquity being removed, having suffered for the consequences of her sin. And then look at verse 3. A voice is calling, Clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth a desert highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the Lord of glory will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Here Isaiah prophesies that one day a prophet will come, a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the people for the Lord of glory himself who will come in the sight of all the people and they will see him themselves in their land. This is a great promise. And Isaiah says it is sure to happen because though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever when he makes a promise. He cannot break it. The people of Israel waited and they waited and the promise was never fulfilled. It was never fulfilled. Previous, in previous years, the kingdom had split if you remember the history of Israel, after Solomon, uh, the tribes uh, were divided. Two kingdoms were made. Ten tribes in the north, the tribe or the kingdom of Israel, and the southern one was the kingdom of Judah. Jeroboam was the first king of the northern tribes, and he instituted a, uh, a wicked, false system of worship, and they followed that system of worship all of their days god was finally so fed up with them that in 722 he has sent the assyrians to wipe them out and all the captives were spread all over the assyrian empire but judah had a few good kings and so god kept them around a little bit longer isaiah prophesies right before their demise and what happens is, is in 605 B.C., Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. And in three deportations, they were taken away. The city was destroyed, burnt with fire, and it was left desolate. God had promised that they would be able to return to Israel from captivity in Babylon after 70 years. And after 70 years, that happened just like God promised. They were able to return the temple and the walls around Jerusalem were rebuilt. The Mosaic system of worship was reinstituted. And this all happened in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. All of these men were used by God to bring Israel back into the land to rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem and reinstitute true worship in the land. But the problem is, is the people quickly fell away again. 
And they were not flourishing. They were suffering. They kept wanting God to bless them, but they didn't want to bless God with their obedience. But a few, a few kept looking for the Lord of glory to come. A few remembered what Isaiah said, and they waited for the day when the Lord of glory himself would come to his people, and that prophet would cry out, a voice is calling, and five generations had passed by, and nothing happened. And you can imagine what people were saying. You know, where is he? You know, where is this Lord of glory? Where's the prophet crying out in the wilderness? When is it going to happen? When are our, our enemy is going to be defeated when our fortune is going to be restored and our oppression taken away from us. When, when, when? It's been 200 years. It hasn't happened yet. Maybe God's promises aren't any good. Maybe he lied to us. Turn to Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. Last prophet of the Old Testament. In the last chapter of the last book of the last prophet in the Old Testament, in the end of chapter 3, the Lord through Malachi has rebuked Israel for their sin, but promised to save those who fear and esteem his name, to punish those who do not. And the Lord makes this promise starting in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from a stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I am commanding in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And in these verses and these last words... Of the Old Testament prophets, God promises to heal those who fear his name in 4.2. He promises they will have victory over their enemies in verse 3. He promises to send them Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord in verse 5. He promises to turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers and the fathers back to the, the children to reunite, reunite Israel in peace, delivering them from their oppressors. And this was wonderful news. The people of Israel longed for this. They hoped for this. They couldn't wait for this. They had waited and waited since the days of Isaiah. Nothing happened. And they waited for 400 more years. Ten generations more passed. 1,700 or 17 um, generations since Isaiah made his promise and there was no voice crying in the wilderness. The Lord of glory did not appear. The hills were not prepared. The people were not prepared. They were not delivered from enemies. They were still under oppression. And you can imagine what they're saying. When is it going to happen? I mean, is it ever going to happen? How long do you have to wait before something happens? And the Gossip of Luke tells us how long. I'm sure that some, 
thought God had failed to keep his promises, that the voice crying out in the wilderness would not come, that Elijah would not come, that the Lord of glory would not come, but there were always the righteous remnant, those faithful few who remembered that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And in the first verses of Luke's gospel account, we have the knock at the door. God, after being silent for 400 years, is going to speak again. He is going to send his angels. He is going to send Elijah. He is going to send the Messiah. He is going to fulfill his promises, every single one of them, because his word cannot fail. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1, and this morning we are just going to get introduced to the instruments God uses to fulfill his promises. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, follow along as I read. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both advanced in years. From these three verses, you will learn that God is pleased to use three different kinds of people. And the first kind of person God uses is an average one. God uses average people. Look at verse 5 again. The text first gives us the time. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Luke is a very precise writer. And all the way through his gospel, he gives us time references so we can know when these events are taking place. Well, Herod, Herod the Great, as he was called, was given the title King of Judea by the Roman Senate, and he reigned from 37 to 4 BC. He was a great architect, but a very great sinner as well. He loved his title, King of the Jews. He loved it so much that if you remember the Christmas narrative, when the Magi came and said, You know, we have come to see him who was born king of the Jews. He had all the infants in the area slain. While the exact date of these events cannot be determined, we can be pretty close. For instance, verse 24 tells us that it was after the days of Zacharias' priestly service, and the priestly service lasted one week, that Elizabeth became pregnant and kept herself in seclusion for five months. Then Luke records the visit of the angel to Mary, where the angel tells Mary in verse 36, if you want to look there, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. She who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Now when you look at the story, you see what happens. The angel appears to Mary. The, Mary, the angel says that Elizabeth is in her sixth month. Immediately, Mary runs to Elizabeth's house, her cousin, and when she greets Elizabeth, you remember what happened, the baby leaps, Elizabeth's baby, leaps in her womb, 
And she proclaims, blessed are you and the fruit of your womb, which means that right when the angel told Mary, you are going to conceive and bear a son, she was pregnant at that moment. And so we know that Jesus is six months younger than John the Baptist. Luke chapter 2, if you look there, verses 1 and 2, tells us Jesus was born when Caesar Augustus was in power and Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke 3.1 gives us six time references to different people who ruled at that time. If you look at 3.1, it says, Now in the 15th year, in the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachicus, Trachaconitis was, um, and Trachaconitis, and Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene, and the high priesthood of Annas, uh, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now that is a six-fold time reference. So historians have a heyday with this, because then they go and they look up all these people, and they try and discern as a close a time when this happened, and so we know for certain that Jesus was born around. 6 to 4 B.C. Now you may be thinking to yourself, wait a second, Jack. B.C. means before Christ. How could Jesus be born before he was? Well, our calendar was that we use was instituted later and they, they got off a few years. But we are certain it was between 6 and 4 B.C. But notice the text again. Next, the text mentions two average people. There was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife and the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Here we learn that both Zacharias and Elizabeth were not only from the tribe of Levi, but both descendants of Aaron. The line went from Levi to Kohath to Amram to Jochebed to Aaron to Ithamar and Eleazar and all their sons. And what happened is, is Ithamar and Eleazar had many sons, and their sons had many sons, and pretty soon the line of the priesthood was huge. Then in 1 Chronicles chapter 23 and 24, David had these, all of these priests divided up into divisions. And these divisions then were chosen twice a year, and then men from those divisions were chosen by lot to serve the Lord and serve the people before the Lord. And so we know that Zacharias was of the eighth division, the division of Abijah. Verse 9 tells us they would cast lots so God could choose which men from each division could serve. Remember, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, 33. The Bible does not teach luck. They teach God's utter sovereignty over everything. And so when they needed to choose the men to serve, they would cast lots knowing it was all from the Lord. And in this instance, Zacharias was chosen. Now the name Zacharias or Zechariah they are one and the same name, you can say it either way, means remembered by Jehovah. This man, who was married to a woman named Elizabeth, was chosen. He would stand before the people 
and burn incense and offer prayers. Now, what's incredible about this is the descendants had multiplied to such a huge degree that the divisions were so large. And because they were only chosen twice a year to serve for a week, that the chances of even being picked were so slim that many priests would wait their whole life and not have the opportunity that Zacharias had. These things were instituted in Exodus 30, verses 7 through 8. God said, I want this incense burning before me perpetually. And so Zacharias had the rare privilege of being able to do that, being chosen by God through casting of lots. The second person mentioned is Elizabeth. Elizabeth's name means God is my oath. She too is a descendant of Aaron. Of course, she doesn't have a division because women weren't allowed to serve in the temple. Other than being of the tribe of Levi and one of the many multitudes of the descendants of Levi and Aaron, this man and this woman were just ordinary people. There was nothing extra special about them, but it was God's sovereign choice to use them to be the parents of of the voice crying out in the wilderness, the prophet Elijah. God is going to use them as we progress through the text to break the 400-year period of silence. And there is a lesson to learn from all of this, other than the fact that God always keeps his word. And that is this, God uses average people just like you. He uses average people just like you. Oftentimes, you hear people say things like, oh, if God would you know, only save Bill Gates. Oh, look how rich he is. Oh, he could do so much good for the Lord. He would be so great. Listen. God doesn't need Bill Gates, and he doesn't need Bill Gates' money. As a matter of fact, God gave Bill Gates everything he has. He gave him life. He gave him a brain. He gave him breath every day so far of his life. He gave him the power to make the wealth he has. God did that. God doesn't need him. He needs God. You see, God likes to get glory for himself by using average, ordinary, and oftentimes below average people. And some of you are going, amen. (laughs) He likes to use fishermen, tax collectors, harlots, political zealots, people from all backgrounds of life. He likes to use average people. To do great things. You may not be the smartest or the best looking or the most polished speaker, but God loves to use regular old average folk. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is kind of giving us his his, uh, methodology for doing ministry. And in this section, he is contrasting. The foolishness of man, which he calls wisdom, and the wisdom of God, which he calls foolishness. 
He's kind of being sarcastic here. And he says this, starting in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brethren, that's you, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Did you see that? God likes to use foolish people, weak people, despised people, base people. He likes to use people who are not in the sight of the world. He uses people just like you so he can put his wisdom, his grace, and his power on display and get more glory for himself. I, mean, I don't know about you. Do, you. do you ever wonder that God ever uses you? I do. I wonder all the time. It, I constantly marvel that God uses me. You know, somebody, some of you know my magnificent credentials. I grew up in a family that never taught me anything about the Bible. My dad was an alcoholic. I wasted 18 years of my life bowing before the idol of TV and sports. I was a lousy student. In high school, my grades were usually C's and D's. I lived for the world and Satan was my master. My God was my appetite. After I became a Christian towards the end of my high school career... I didn't go to some prestigious Christian college. No, I went to the local university where I did not get a degree in Bible, but two degrees in electronics to help me in my ministry. I went to seminary not knowing anything about English because I basically flunked out of all of my English stuff in high school and junior high. So I had to learn Hebrew and Greek and English grammar with a ninth grade English book. At the same time, I struggle with Hebrew and Greek. I only got C's. I can't spell. I have dyslexia. And you know my grammar is tortured. People always come up to me and say, you know, you didn't get your superlative right. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I have students in my preaching lab who can preach way better than I can. And they haven't even got out of seminary yet. And yet God's using me, he's using me. I'm one of the things that are not. And you know, God wants to use you too. Have you ever thought that you didn't have much to offer God, that there was nothing special about you, that you were just average? I have news for you. You are the perfect person for God. He wants to use somebody like you. Sometimes people come to me and they give me all these excuses. Well, you don't know how it was in my house growing up. No, I'm glad. I grew up in a different house. I grew up in a very dysfunctional family, they tell me. Besides, you know, I'm too tall, I'm too short, I'm not rich, my ears are too big, I'm too old, you know, whatever. I just want to look at them and say, hey, bud, welcome to the club. 
How many of you grew up in perfect homes with perfect privileges and perfect abilities and unlimited worldly resources? No one. No one. And Zacharias and Elizabeth were not special, so God chose them. They were special because he chose them. That's what made them special. God is in the business of using ordinary people, which means you never forget that. He wants to give himself glory through the knots. God can move a mountain with a bent spoon, and guess who the bent spoon is? It's you. It's me. Sure, God will use some of you more than others. But God uses any person who is willing to live according to his word. Look at verse 6, where we see the other kind of person God likes to use. God uses average people who are godly. After being introduced to Zacharias and Elizabeth, verse 6 says... They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And I know what some of you are thinking. Wait, 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 wait. That does not describe me. I am not blameless. I am not walking in all the commandments of the Lord. Doesn't sound very average to me. Well, that's because you don't know what this text is saying, but I'm going to explain it to you. Let me ask you this. What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be righteous? The word literally means to be right. To conform one's life to a right standard, which in this case is the word of God. And where do believers get their righteousness? Where did Zacharias and Elizabeth get their righteousness from? Were they born righteous? No. Did they earn righteousness? No. Did they attain righteousness from God, apart from God? No. Did they deserve to be made righteous because of the color of their hair or their looks or their strengths or their intelligence? No. 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 Listen to what Wiest says in his word studies in the Greek New Testament, he tells us something very important about the meaning of this word righteousness. He quotes Kremner's biblico-theological lexicon of the New Testament saying, quote, that which is righteous in a biblical sense is not determined by man nor by any external consideration but by God and that by divine fiat. End quote. If you don't know what fiat is, he's not talking about a car there. It's by divine act. Were Zacharias and Elizabeth righteous? So God chose them and used them? Or were they unrighteous and he chose them, made them righteous, and then used them? The latter. The latter. We have learned this before, haven't we? We are saved by grace and sanctified by grace. And grace is both unearned and undeserved. You can't do anything to earn God's grace. 
The grace of God is neither earned nor deserved. And without Christ, you can do nothing. You are righteous because you are in Christ, who is the Holy One. All of your righteousness is borrowed from Christ. Not only that, but the text says they were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And this word blameless just means that. You couldn't fault them for doing anything. Well, what were all the commandments and requirements of the Lord? Well, the commandments and requirements of the Lord were a big chunk of them in the Old Testament. When you sin, then go do this and that and the other thing. Offer sacrifices. You ever wonder why God has that huge sacrificial system in the Old Testament? Because he knew that people were going to sin. And Zacharias and Elizabeth had not reached sinless perfection. No, that would contradict many scriptures which tell us that we aren't sinless and we aren't perfect and we never get that way. This side of glory No, what this means is, is whenever they did sin, they just used the means God had given them to be right before God. So they were walking in a blameless way. They were walking in a blameless way. They were not perfect. God provided for what he knew men would do, sin, and then they just used the means that God provided. That's why in the Old Testament you'll come across this person, that person. They were blameless. They were upright. He's not talking about sinless perfection. He just means that they were obedient. And when they sinned, they dealt with it like God said. Remember the law of Moses anticipated all of this. And not only that, the New Testament does too. What is God's provision for you? Well, it is Christ, the once for all sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But when you sin, what is his provision for you? Everyone should know the answer to this. If you sin, what should you do? Turn to 1 John 1, 9. Most of us have this verse memorized because we use it so often. At least I do. You need to know this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he, that's God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if you look at the verse immediately before that, it says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then notice, just go up to verse 5. Look in verse 5. This is the message we have heard, right? Look at verse six. If we say that we have fellowship, look at the end of verse six, we lie. Look at verse seven. But if we look down in verse eight, if we say, if we have no sin, if we are deceiving ourselves, the truth is not in us. Look at verse nine. If we, our Our, us, do you get the point there? He's including everybody here, himself, all the believers. He's saying, listen, if you say you don't have any sin, if you say you've reached sinless, you're you're deluded, you're deceived, and the truth is not in you. 
God knows you're going to sin even though you're a Christian. And this is his provision. It's Jesus Christ and all you need to do is come before God and confess your sins and he cleanses you from how much? All unrighteousness, which makes you righteous, blameless before the Lord. Zacharias and Elizabeth were righteous by the grace of God, just like anyone is made righteous. You know, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Righteousness is always given to us based off of what Christ did. They were just two average people who relied on God's grace to walk blamelessly in the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So if you are an average person or even a below average person and you are saved and you have your sins confessed, blameless, righteous before God. That's something. Isn't that something? You are perfectly cleansed because of what Christ did for you. Ephesians 1.4, speaking to the church, says that we are to be holy and blameless. Ephesians 5.27 tells us that Christ gave himself up for the church, that's you, so that you would be sincere and blameless. Paul encourages the Philippian church in Philippians 1.10 to remain sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And in 2.15 to prove themselves to be blameless and innocent. Peter in 2 Peter 3.14 tells his readers to be diligent, to be found spotless and blameless at the coming of Christ. Those verses are directed at the whole church. Being righteous and blameless before the Lord is just average, everyday, old Christianity. It's not some super high-speed torque level of godliness. It's just being a Christian. Using the means that God says. He knows you're going to sin, confess it. You know, the only difference between a mature believer and an immature believer is mature believers learn how to confess quicker. Where the the immature believer, they'll sin, kind of dabble in it, enjoy it for a while, wallow around in there, not confess it right away, live in the flesh for a while, and then all of a sudden God's hand becomes heavy upon them, and then they confess it. The mature believer sins too. Maybe not quite as frequently, but they sin. And when they do, they just confess it to God because they realize the pain of waiting is just too much to endure. And so what we have here is your average sinners who are applying God's means to live before him in a blameless and righteous way. But some of you are thinking to yourself, but Jack, I mean... I've got disadvantages. You don't know my problems, and I have I have disadvantages. I you know, God could never use me. I you know, I'm I'm broken. Oh, really? Let's look at the next point. God uses disadvantaged people. Look at verse seven. The text says, but They were righteous and walking blamelessly, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now, you need to understand something here. In the New Testament times, not having children was bad for the Jews. If you didn't have children, it was just a disgrace, especially male children. The Jews prized their genealogies and and their inheritance was passed down through their descendants. Their role, their identity, their function in the tribes of Israel was all determined by their genealogy. And if you didn't have children, your line, extinct. 
You know, what if Aaron didn't have any sons? Well, his line would have ceased. Ithamar and Eleazar wouldn't have been born. All their sons wouldn't have been born. There would have been no priests to serve in the temple. No children, no line, no inheritance. But there was something worse than that. And that's just a Jewish woman not having a child. The reason is this. Every Jewish woman hoped and longed that one day, maybe by the grace of God, maybe they would be able to give birth to the Messiah. And if not the Messiah, maybe, maybe the voice crying out in the wilderness, maybe the, a prophet. But if you're barren, no children. Not only that, the Jews knew that God is the one who opens the womb. God is the one who gives children. And this is what they thought. Well, listen, if you, if you don't have children and God is the one who gives children and nothing is impossible with God, he must be punishing you. That's what they thought. He must be judging you. And this was a huge dishonor in the culture. Look down in verse 25 of chapter 1 of Luke. This is why after Elizabeth discovers she's pregnant, she says this, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. She just felt disgraced all of her life. She felt disgraced. She wanted children so bad. She tried to have them so bad and she couldn't have them. So they had no children. This was a disadvantage. And the reason given is she was barren. It's not that they just waited too long. She couldn't have them. She was barren. But there have been times, and you know, some of you may attest to this personally, there have been times when some women thought they were barren, and then all of a sudden later on in life, Children, we have some friends where they had one child and then all of a sudden the wife, quote, went barren until she had twins 13 years later. You know, you don't know. You don't know what actually is going to happen. You just think, well, I'm barren. I'm not having any children. I just can't have them, I guess. I, it's not the Lord's will. We even saw in the psalm that Roger read this morning, Right? That he takes the barren woman and makes her rejoice as a mother of children. God is able to do that. Yet notice what the text says at the end of verse 7. And they were both advanced in years. This removes all hope. If you can't have children during your normal childbearing years, then after it's too late to have children physically because of your old age because you just can't have them anymore there's no hope and people this is a huge disadvantage especially if your calling in life is to give birth to the voice crying in the wilderness what are you going to do i mean they don't know that yet but they're going to next week we'll find out about it god has chosen this couple these not people despised people, disgraced people, this childless, old and advanced in years couple to be the parents of the voice crying in the wilderness. And so if you're barren and if you're beyond the age of being able to have children, this is a disadvantage. But like Abraham and Sarah, there is 
hope for Zacharias and Elizabeth to produce a child because they believe in a God in whom nothing is impossible. And when you have a God who can do all things, there is always hope. And do you see what is happening here? Oh, God could have chosen. God could have chosen some young, fertile woman to give birth to the voice crying in the wilderness. Instead, he picks an old couple, an advanced in years old couple, an advanced in years old couple with a barren wife. Why? Because he gets more glory for himself by using disadvantaged people, the things that are not in the eyes of the world to shame the things that are. He chose to use this couple who in the eyes of the world could not produce a child, and they did. So what are your disadvantages? I mean, think about it. Not very smart, bad eyesight, old, advanced in years, too young. Bad memory, can't spell, dyslexia, grew up in a dysfunctional family. Single mom, spouse isn't a believer, you're a sinner. Huh, perfect candidate, just the kind of person God's looking for. A thing that's not. A not noble, not rich, not strong person. You're not wise, you're not mighty, you're not noble, but base, despised, and a knot in the side of the world. You, God's just saying, oh man, this, yeah, this is a raw lump of clay. Watch we mold this person into something great and shame the world. So what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Are you going to let your averageness stop you from serving God? Are you going to let your disadvantages keep you from being used by God? Are you going to say, well, I'm not perfect, so God can't use me? Well, who is? You have every resource you need to walk blamelessly and righteously before God. Just keep your sins confessed. Place yourself at God's disposal. Serve Him faithfully, consistently, passionately, diligently. God loves to use people like that. Just average old people who are pressing on towards the mark. As you leave here this morning, make a commitment to get involved in ministry. Pick an area of ministry. Find out who's in charge of it. Hound them till they make you do something. Do it in the best way you can with the resources God has given you. Don't compare yourself with the things that are in the sight of the world. God uses the things that are not. And someday when you lay your disadvantaged body in the dust of the earth, you will stand before the Lord of glory himself who will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were a great sinner, but my grace was greater. Let's pray. 
Father, we we are thankful just for your word and just for the whole Christmas narrative and the birth of John the Baptist and Christ. And, oh, there's some great truths here. We are so thankful just for the example of this elderly couple who seem to be at the end of their life, serving in their final days, being a disgrace among men, and yet your work and their lives had just begun. And you used them to be the parents of a man whom you yourself said was the greatest man born of women. Father, I pray that all of us here would never think that you couldn't use us because we are not what the world says is valuable and important. Help us to remember that you want to use the despised and the weak, the lowly and the humble, those who are disadvantaged because it magnifies your glory to use us. Father, I pray that all of us would walk before you blamelessly and uprightly. Whenever we sin, may we be quick to confess that. And Father, we just thank you for the way you've used us already and pray that we would be holy vessels and that you would use us any way you please so that in the future, for all eternity, we can praise you for how you used us, even though in the sight of the world you were nothing. We just thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.